Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. There have been so many iconic American expeditions, think Lewis and Clark or the Apollo missions to the moon, that we might forget the importance of the U.S. Navy, not only because it launched ocean expeditions, but because these expeditions tried to understand the nature of the ocean itself. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Jason Smith discusses the U.S. Navy's role in exploring and charting the ocean world. Smith is an assistant professor of history at Southern Connecticut State University. He's the author of To Master the Boundless Sea, the U.S. Navy, the Marine Environment, and the Cartography of Empire. Jason Smith, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for the invitation. You say in your book that historians of the military have really ignored the importance of naval science, and historians of science simultaneously haven't really focused very much on the Navy, and yet you make this claim in the book that by 1840 or so, the Navy is really one of the most important scientific institutions in the country. Could you talk about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, it was a real, I I felt to be a real substantial historiographical whole. Naval historians have traditionally been interested in in narratives of battle and operational history and institutional histories, biographies of admirals and generals, um, histories of battles. Um, They've been, um, to some degree, focused on combat to the detriment, I think, of the military more broadly and the Navy's role in peacetime. Uh, I think historians of science, and particularly historians of marine science, while they do touch on on important roles for the Navy and and the military more broadly, um, I felt like um, they were asking a certain uh, set of questions that were pertinent to the history of science and the historiography of the history of science, but that didn't mesh in any substantive way with the sorts of questions that military historians were asking. Mm-hmm. And I'm trained as a military historian, so I'm, I'm sort of coming at the history of science and all the, some of these other subfields that I'm placing my foot in. 
asking questions that I hope that military historians will be interested in. That is the projection of, of national interests across the ocean, the projection of power at a, to a certain degree, yeah. commercial and an imperial military, imperial, military strategic power. But to do it in a way, I, I hoped that would sort of ask big, broad questions that would interest all of these different subfields. So I, so I found that particular niche. You know, part of the problem with naval science in the antebellum era is that it had sort of a fraught place within the U.S. Navy itself mm -hmm. that as important as it was in particular moments. I think it's clear that the naval officer profession the Navy's culture, its institutional culture, um, was not one that celebrated science, even as it was a really important scientific organization, maybe, yeah. maybe one of the most important scientific institutions in antebellum America. The Navy comes at it, uh, comes at science from a from a very fraught place, fraught place yeah. and in, un, in an uncertain place. Um, and so I think that's part of the problem, too, that they were just still trying to figure out their own scientific role. Um, and, and that's, I think, translated in some ways into the historiography um, as well. You, you know, one of the things that I liked uh, so much about your book is you are talking about the Navy as an institution, but you're also talking about, well, what does it mean to be a sailor when you get on one of these ships and you learn how, you learn the practice of, of going to sea and that so many of the things that you would learn as a, a sailor, probably even an officer, I would imagine, are what you call folkloric. Uh, it's folkloric knowledge rather than scientific knowledge. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the folkloric knowledge you would learn in the U.S. Navy, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about how, how that might change. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there, it seems to me in reading so many sailors and, and uh, seamen's journals and officers' reflections on their duty, that the sea is so fundamental to everything that they do. I mean, for to navigate a ship at sea is the most fundamental of practices. Uh, and the sea as a space, as, a, as an elemental force, as a presence, is, is pervasive in seafaring, whether that's in the merchant marine or the whaling fleet mm -hmm. or, the, or the navy. And so it struck me that that was a part of seafaring that everybody sort of accepted as true, but one that wasn't really examined all that carefully or interrogated all that much. What did the sea, the experience of seafaring, knowledge of the sea mean to these people? Why was it important to their everyday lives? Why was it important to the practice of navigation? Why was it important to this bigger sort of strategic questions about what the, you know, the Navy was intent on doing mm -hmm. throughout the 19th century. Uh, what was the place of the ocean? And so one of the, the purposes of the book was to place the ocean pretty centrally within the narrative, which was something that, again, I think all people would agree that the sea is central to seafaring, but something that needed, I think, to be examined a little bit more deeply. But I, I became fascinated then in examining those questions with how it is that knowledge is gained, uh, spread, how the sea is understood by these people who from the common, you know, seaman before the mast to the captain on the quarterdeck, how, how it is that that knowledge is, is learned. Uh, and so as you say, you know, I think that particularly in the early 19th century, as we see a gradual professionalization of navigational knowledge, you know, we see a really interesting coexistence, I think, of folkloric knowledge and a, a gradually more professional scientific knowledge. Um, and they, they sort of coexist 
together, sometimes easily, um, and sometimes in tension with one another. Yeah. And so this is the sort of central work, I think, that naval hydrographers begin to do when, when hydrography, the study of ocean depths and currents and tides and meteorology is institutionalized beginning in the 1830s, is these hydrographers and surveyors and cartographers begin to see their role as sort of replacing these folkloric ideas of navigation that had yeah. always existed al alongside emerging scientific knowledge for quite a long time, replacing those folkloric understandings with knowledge and with expertise, with theorizing that was based in empiricism and in a gradually professionalizing standard yeah. of inquiry. Could you actually give an example of like some folkloric knowledge that, you know, sailors were holding on to that then, you know, other people are trying to tell them, like, there's another way to, to roll with this. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's a great line or a few lines that come out of Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before Mass, published in uh, 1840, uh, in which Dana, right, who's a uh, Harvard-educated student, yeah. goes to sea, you know, it's very much, in, in a lot of ways, out of his element, uh, you know, and this is on a commercial vessel, not a naval vessel, um, where he's speaking to the cook uh, who is telling him about these folkloric understandings that he has about Finns, Scandinavian Finns from Finland. And he, he basically, uh, the cook says, you Harvard boy, don't tell me, don't tell me about navigation. Don't tell me about taking azimuths and uh, celestial navigation, right? I know because I experienced, I witnessed yeah. it, I saw it, I formed conclusions of my own, you know, the, the best school for him. And for, I think it's representative of a general, if we can generalize about yeah. so many mariners of, of all kinds of different classes aboard ship. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably true, you know, across the board, that from the, the lowest sort of deckhand to the captain of these merchant vessels, they learn their trade through experience, they learn their, their craft, they learn navigation through experience, and what they themselves witnessed and observed, and for them, you know, quite understandably, that was that was the most convincing evidence they needed to learn how to do what they yeah. were doing. And so it, it, it was, you know, for an outsider, whether that, that outsider is a hydrographer coming from an institution like the Navy, who is, you know, of course, a seafaring business, right? Or sea right. seafaring work, or whether it's you know some Ivy League undergrad, they don't want to be told by an outsider. I think they're, they're, they're suspicious, at least, of yeah. a different way of thinking about this that it, that doesn't necessarily mesh with their own conclusions drawn from experience, or or even passed down through the maritime community. Um, I, I feel like this this or I think that this folkloric understanding, these folkloric understandings of, of navigation, um, are very much rooted in you know sort of intergenerational um, apprenticeships, uh, almost, almost yeah. yeah, particularly among the officers of a ship, yeah. um, where that that knowledge is passed down within families or within sort of business circles. Yeah, there's a beautiful line talking about the kind of well, I should say one of the constructions of this new way of doing navigation in the in the navy is the hydrographic chart and you have this line from your book the hydrographic chart remained like a faded and shattered mirror of the environment it purported to represent distorting and dissembling as much as it revealed what do you mean by that yeah i mean well i mean i think that the hydrographic chart then becomes the tool, the instrument through which this hydrographic knowledge is transferred and the case made of this emerging hydrographic science that this is information, this is knowledge that's worth embracing right, and using. That's, I think, the hydrographer's way of really beginning to break down 
um, the suspicion within the broader maritime community. Um, and so the charts carried a certain authority, particularly from the people who made them, yeah. right? The cartographers mm -hmm. thought that these, these were examples of, of modern cartographic method surveying trigonometric method. We could talk a little bit about how these charts are surveyed and made. And they're, they're imbued and invested with a good bit of authority, even as the process and the, the representation of charting the ocean is such a challenge within the marine environment. that So the chart provided some sort of visual representation of the watery world that these navigators, these, these captains and and mass chipmasters were, were trying to navigate. Um, but at the same time, the sea was so vast and it was so dynamic as an environment. It was so deep and it was such a challenge to render on two-dimension cartographic space that often these charts were wrong. Uh, would, just for uh, as a point of fact, were the charts essentially, so how would it be different from, let's say, a land survey that people might be familiar with, you know, apart from like sounding depths, that sure, sort of thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the hydrographic chart would, of course, uh, probably perhaps the most important piece of information that the hydrographic chart would, would carry would be the depth soundings, particularly as a ship came into coastal waters where they, they had perhaps dangers of running aground. But uh, these charts often contain tide tables as well, right? I mean, this gets to the point of this ocean environment always changing, right? I yeah. mean, the, the, the convergence of land and sea is always changing mm -hmm. along this very hazardous, circuitous coastlines, uh, you know, which you can imagine keep up a, a ship's navigator or a ship master up late at night, uh, worrying about, you know, possibly losing life and cargo on some uh, on some uncharted reef. Um, so depth soundings, tide tables, um, sometimes the chart would include some sailing directions uh -huh. or some water's view of the approaches to a, a port, a sort of coast pilot, what a pilot would see as he, he was navigating into uh, a harbor or a port. So these charts could have any number of these things, and often they had, had all of them. But, you know, in a way that was, is, I think, different from topographical mapping, um, as, as difficult and challenging as that process yeah. is and that practice is, it was orders of degree more difficult at yeah. sea, where we're just ex access, uh, not to mention the changing nature of the very environment itself. Constantly. Um, constantly yeah. meant that, that, that the process of hydrographic surveying was always, uh, was always being undone or needing to be redone. Uh, you know, not to mention that, you know, seven tenths of the earth are covered with right. this, this watery, you know, nature. So one of the really kind of, let's say, the, the most spectacular naval scientific event in the early 19th century is the U.S. exploring expedition. Could you talk a little bit uh, just to, as a kind of primer for what this expedition was, where it went, what, what it was trying to do? Sure. Um, the U.S. Exploring Expedition circumnavigated the world between 1838 and 1842, uh, six ships uh, at its height, although it lost some of those along the way, 300-some um, American men, well, maybe not all Americans, in fact, but uh, certainly officered by Americans. Uh, and its goal was to survey particularly the South Seas, the South Pacific, uh, for an emergent merchant marine, American merchant marine and whaling fleet that was mm -hmm. beginning to really venture into these waters in large numbers uh, in search of whales or new markets for trade. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I think also as a concrete goal, um, at least as its promoters and its organizers uh, believed, 
it to be was uh, the, the exploration and, and the, hopeful, the hoped for discovery of an Antarctic continent. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people, of course, uh, had known that land existed in that area, but the, the dimensions of the land, the extent, the scale of the land was unknown, and there were, of course, all these rumors about, you know, something of continental proportions, but it was unknown. And so um, the pursuit of the sort of glory of exploration and finding a new mysterious continent was something that, that attracted the interest of the American scientific community, politicians, uh, and others, you know, who who were, you know, in this era of the, the early Republic and the antebellum United States, really interested in sort of, I think, staking a claim to America's scientific prowess relative to Europe. Yeah, that, that was the question I had when I was reading about the exploring expedition in your book was, you know, James Cook went, you know, on this circumnavigation, I guess three of them, uh, in the late 1700s. And that was such a you know, spectacular world story that he did that. And then there were others too who who did that as well. And I'm thinking by the by the eighteen thirties, what was the I guess the question is this, to what degree are the United States government and the US Navy in particular looking over their shoulder at those projects? And to what degree is like, now this is really an American thing. We're this is we have, you know, specific American you know, uh, specific American goals in this? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it's both. Um, you know, Cook and the British, uh, and, and not just Cook, but Ross and others, um, are models uh, for what the Americans are hoping to do. Um, the officers of the expedition, the leaders of this expedition, um, are steeped in uh, reading the, the, the narratives that come out of those voyages. Uh-huh. In many cases, they're following the very charts that those those paragons of exploration made themselves, you know, and so there are really interesting moments where, um, for example, the, during the X-axis, this is the name that the, the expedition was referred to by the XX, its, uh, its first Antarctic cruise in the um, early um, winter of 1839, in pursuit of Cook's A plus ultra, the southernmost point that Cook had ventured before he had been turned back by ice and, and, and snow. Uh, and this, this sort of fixed point on the ocean that these Americans knew by heart, latitude and longitude, became deeply symbolic to them. Just wow. a piece of icy water, you know, but the idea that you can see it in the narratives of not just the, the official narratives that come out of the expedition, which are very rich, um, but the but the expedition's officers' journals who that they're required to keep, um, some of the other um, um, stuff that was, that was published by um, members of the expedition afterward, you can almost feel a, a sense of exhilaration as these guys approach this spot of water. And they are ultimately turned back short of that um, yeah. and, and how disappointed they were. But this, this, there's, there's this really interesting use of the European models as a way to claim legitimacy, first mm-hmm. of all. Like, you know, we're for real here. Yeah. You know, we, we, we belong in this community of the great scientific powers of the world. Uh, but at the same time, if we can just surpass <laughs> the accomplishments of our great heroes, then we can also claim something that's unique for the United States, that we have superseded those. Um, and so I think that's an important uh, sort of trope in, in American exploration in that era, is, is you know paying their due tributes to European explorers when the expedition is in Australia. 
we're getting ready for its second Antarctic voyage in the, the winter of 1840, the, the men, that you know, they go to um, the last known spot where La Perouse, the French explorer, yeah. left on his ill-fated voyage was never seen again uh, to pay their respects. Um, they go to this well in Australia, uh, outside of Sydney, where Cook watered his ships and drank from the well. I mean, quite literally and metaphorically, mm. drinking from the font of navigation. Or so they see themselves history. as part of this Absolutely. story tradition. But but a hope that, that, that there's a sort of nationalistic rivalry going on here, particularly with the British. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is common more generally of American, the American Navy throughout the 19th century, that it's, it's both... Um, it, it both seeks to emulate the, the Royal Navy in, a, in some ways, yeah. um, at least in terms of its practices and, and its, its sort of uh, its, its, its own um, sense of where it, where it might go in the future. Um, but, but also, uh, there's also this rivalry, um, yeah. whether it's scientific or it could be military as well. I mean, towards the late 19th century, the U.S. Navy is, you know, as, as close as that Anglo-American relationship has gotten by the late 19th century. There are still war scares. The United States Navy is still beginning to, to plan contingencies, war plans right. for war with Great Britain. So there is this interesting dynamic between the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy as a model to emulate scientifically and otherwise, but also one yeah. that, that, that there's a potential conflict or tension with. I, in my um, Arctic stuff, you know, the Franklin expedition has all of those elements too. The the British expedition that's missing, and and a, a group of Americans that are desperately trying to both, you know, save the British for humanitarian purposes and kind of kick their ass, you know, by by finding them and showing them up. Yeah, yeah, and this seems to be a you know a, a sort of um, this is a rich ground for historians of the early Republic in particular. This sort of claiming of a unique American identity, whether that's in you know, politics and celebration, um, this, this creation of American nationalism. And that happens on land in the early Republic and in practices of, of, of everyday life and in politics, but it also happens at sea. And you find it, I think, most richly in this era at sea, at least in this scientific rivalry and tension and cooperation. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is another point about hydrographic surveying and chart making is that it's a, even in the 19th century, it's both a nationalistic effort, but it's also a, a cooperative. Highly uh, international. Highly international yeah. effort. You know, um, you had mentioned earlier the challenges of the hydrographic map as being something that in a kind of fixed two-dimensional form, you're some, somehow supposed to represent this constantly changing three-dimensional structure. And Matthew Morey, who uh, joins that or actually leads the Naval Observatory and Hydrographical Office in 1844, he's one of the guys who, in the history of science at least, we talk about as the guy who's trying to wrap his brain around this this project. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Morey, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to change the landscape of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, Maury is a central figure. Uh, you can't tell the story without talking about Maury. And a lot of people have talked about Maury, both in naval history uh, and in the history of science, I think, the history of marine science in particular. Um, yes, as you said, he uh, he assumes command of the what is in 1842, the Depot of Charts and Instruments, the Navy's first sort of scientific uh, organization within its, mm -hmm. its sort of administrative bureaucracy. In 1844, that becomes um, the uh, Naval Observatory and Hydrographical 
hydrographical office in Washington D.C. But you know, Maury is an interesting. He's an interesting figure. Um, he um, immediately and quite inquisitively um, is is desperate for information uh, that will help the hydrographic office to or the um, the observatory to uh, augment their knowledge about the ocean, their navigational charts. Uh, and the best way that he discovers to do that is to consult old ship logs. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, he's continually frustrated in his early career as a naval officer before he gets to the depot um, by a dearth of navigational knowledge. These charts are, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, they're imperfect and they show us just a very small bit of, of what's out there. Uh, and so um, he, he immediately begins going through old logs, ship logs, for environmental information to, in order to build these charts, to construct these charts. And then he, uh, by 1845, 46, really begins in earnest to uh, establish a program, uh, an international program of cooperation in which shipmasters will send um, an abstract log that he creates that requires them to take sustained, continuous, rather sophisticated observations of the, of the natural world back to him at the hydrographic office. And that information then becomes the, the basis for a, a series of really quite revolutionary sea charts called his wind and current charts, which he begins publishing in 1848. So he's actually petitioning commercial captains yeah. to take down this information, yeah. bring it back to him. And in response, they get a copy? They get a copy, yeah. And this is a very hard sell for him to begin with, because as we said earlier, right, I think that there exists this suspicion within an American maritime community in particular rooted in these folkloric understandings of the new charts and the new routes that Mari begins to tell these shipmasters to take. Basically, Mari is saying to a lot of them that, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. Huh. You're going the wrong ways. You want to get to your destination the fastest, safest, cheapest way possible? Of course you do, right? But you're doing it the wrong way. And that's a hard sell at first for these, I think, rather tradition-bound sailors. Yeah. You know, And these people are not, by and large, people of professional science. They, they, they obviously embrace a certain kind of folkloric scientific knowledge, um, but, but one that's not within the definition of an emerging scientific profession in the 1840s and 1850s. And so Maury, you know, he petitions these, these shipmasters, as you say, uh, and, uh, and has almost no response. I mean, there's just a void of silence. He's not getting <laughs> money back. And then based on his work in the old logs that are stored at the depot, these are mostly naval vessels yeah. that are required to keep logs right. um, and to store them at his, in his in his in the hallways of his institution. He uh, constructs a chart for the best way to travel from uh, the American East Coast to Rio de Janeiro and, uh, and commissions a particular ship from Baltimore to just try it based on his route. And the improvement is extraordinary. Huh. It, it serves, uh, saves a number of days on the old established route to Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. And so it's Maury sees this particularly, this is in 1848, as, as sort of his moment where he begins to break down that suspicion in the maritime community. And he's actually got evidence to show that you can get to these places much quicker if you follow my directions. I also like uh, this story about Maury because, you know, one of the really hot things today in a variety of scientific disciplines is crowdsourcing. Uh, scientific work. And so, for example, you know, people are searching for exoplanets and doing, you know, looking at satellite data for penguin numbers in Antarctica. And like Maury's kind of actually doing this in the 1850s. He's he's hitting up people to do the work for him, which I'm sure he has a fairly small budget that, you know, and all these people are doing this stuff and he's rendering it on the chart. Yeah, Maury is among the first 
to do to do a sort of crowdsourcing, um, I think, uh, and you know, and that way was was pretty revolutionary. You know, Mari was bound not just by by budgetary issues, a small staff at the observatory, but also by the fact that he physically was in a stagecoach accident early in his career and couldn't go to sea anymore. He couldn't fulfill the um, the the standard responsibilities of an officer in the American Navy of his time, that is to command a ship at sea. Yeah, he couldn't do it anymore, and so he has he he sort of by virtue of that and and an innate curiosity about navigation and scientific knowledge sort of inhabits this role at the depot where uh, others have written about this is not just my claim but that you know he he's in crowdsourcing this data and organizing it at the depot into these yeah. charts. I mean, he's essentially getting people to go out there and do what he physic- quite physically can't do. And, you know, as one person, of course, or with a small staff couldn't do in any real way anyway. You know, but they're, they're his sort of eyes and observers in, in a place that he is, is, is physically restricted from going now. And, you know, there, there are lots of really wonderful lines, and Maury is, a, is a, in some ways a stilted but really wonderful writer, which suggests some of his, his popularity outside of the Navy and even outside of the scientific community. But uh, there's some really wonderful passages where he's saying, you know, these observers are my, they're my eyes on the water. I felt like when, when that sounding lead hit bottom, I felt like I touched the bottom myself. Yeah. Like, I mean, huh. they're, they're, they're almost extensions of himself, his, uh, himself yeah. in a lot of ways, as he's limited by That's this sort so of physical disability. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention about Maury and crowdsourcing is that in, in a really wonderful irony, I guess, Maury's, a lot of Maury's ship ship logs that he that he um, uh, collected at the observatory are being used again in, in crowdsourcing environmental data about the ocean in terms of, of, of establishing a sort of baseline for measuring climate change at sea. Yeah. Um, so, so this information again is being crowdsourced in a different way in a modern context um, once again. So it, there, there are numerous layers here and, huh. and uh, what Mari's doing is coming, coming back around for, you know, a sort of related but also different purpose within a different context. Well, you know, I had uh, Angel Callahan from the Naval Research Laboratory here um, a few months ago and to talk about the U.S. Navy's role in launching Vanguard in the 20th century and the first artificial satellite. And it it was so interesting talking to her about how the Navy's purview of it, of what it needs to know, was so vast based upon, you know, the fact that the sea is connected to the sky and you'd really need to know about the ionosphere and things like that. And you make that case very clear in your book when you talk about, let's say, astronomy. You know, the U.S. Navy had an observatory that Maury was in charge of. Did the role of science change by the late 19th century? Are they, is the U.S. Navy still committed to science in the same way? How does that story evolve um, you know, by the last chapters of your book. Yeah. Well, I'd say that in, in Mari's era, we see the, the maybe the closest convergence, and it's a very awkward, intense convergence between a military or a naval marine science or Navy-directed marine science um, and uh, an increasingly professionalized, academic, yeah. uh, academically set um, scientific community. Um, they come together, and Mari is really sort of good, even though he has a, a lot of trouble bridging 
these worlds and holding them together even as they are increasingly moving apart. But what we see in the, the, the post-Civil War era is a Navy that really continues to be interested in a, in a practical, applied navigational science, even as marine science is moving into increasingly theoretical questions. And, and we see the emergence of the field of oceanography um, in the 1870s. Um, and, you know, Maury is in some ways a sort of precursor to that, but uh, often he's, he's sort of criticized or dismissed for, for various reasons. But the Navy remains wedded and, and quite not surprisingly remains wedded to this idea of collecting environmental knowledge, doing science for practical purposes, yeah. right? That navigation is the, the most important reason and astronomy as well. Whatever sort of larger theoretical conclusions you can draw from the data is, is great. Um, but, but we're doing this primarily for practical reasons that, that celestial navigation and astronomy's role in that is, is, is all about the practical. It's all, all about getting from one place to another, understanding your place on the ocean. And so we see that divergence between naval science and, uh, and an increasingly um, sophisticated, not to say that naval science isn't sophisticated, but an increasingly complex civilian scientific community. Yeah. Um, and then towards the, the, towards the very end of the 19th century, uh, the Navy, as it begins to embrace a more muscular role for the nation and itself in the world, as, as it acquires a formal empire... Mm-hmm. Uh, during and after the Spanish-American War of 1898, um, I argue that that naval science continues its its practical or applied function, but now less for commercial purposes, right? Which was had always been its, its service yeah. to to the the larger navigational uh, needs of the maritime community in the United States, which were quite robust in the 1840s, 1850s. That that those commercial imperatives sort of became secondary to growing strategic yeah, uh, imperatives, geopolitical. Yeah. We we need to begin to defend a far-flung oceanic empire by the early 20th century, by yeah. the first decade of the 20th century. We need to understand coastlines and, and, and chart them in ways that are not just commercial in nature, but are strategic. And you can imagine that there is some overlap between commercial interests and strategic interests. And some, some harbors, for example, are of a strategic importance or significance and commercial. But there are also places, coastlines and harbors, that are important strategically that are not commercially. Guantanamo Bay, for example, Cuba being yeah, yeah. you know one of those. Not that there's no commercial um, um, imperatives there, but because of its particular hydrography, because because of its position where it exists in the wind, next to the Windward Passage and guarding approaches to an, an unbuilt canal at that point, these new these places and places that hadn't been of commercial interest before all of a sudden take on much newer and and much urgent more urgent meaning for the U.S. Navy, and so mm-hmm. that applied science is is still central, but the sorts of places and the the importance of it for the Navy change as the Navy's role for itself changes in in the late 19th century and the early 20th. Jason Smith, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Michael. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.